wants to, to uh, bring across to us, and that is uh, the psalm wants us to celebrate the Word of God. As we'll see, the psalmist, he's obsessed with the Word of God. He's fixated on it. He, uh, it. It occupies his mind. It fills his speech. You only get a few verses into the psalm, and you quickly realize that the author of this psalm, he is in love, in love with the Scriptures. Indeed, some have called Psalm 119 a love poem about God's Word. The psalmist cannot stop talking about God's Word, the Bible. This comes out all the more clearly when we realize that the psalmist uses several different terms to speak of the Word of God. So I want to briefly sketch these out for you so that you can see just how pervasive this theme of the Word of the Lord is in the psalm. In the psalm, uh, the, the psalmist speaks of God's Word as being God's law. In verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He also speaks of God's testimony, that is, God's testimony concerning what is his will, what does God want. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Precepts is another term that's used. The specific interest in this term is the responsibilities that God uh, has placed upon his people, the commands that he's given uh, to them. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Another word that's used is sometimes translated word or other times translated promises. Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Or verse 11, I have stored up your word, I have stored up your promise in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist wants to speak of the prescriptions or orders that God has issued. He speaks of God's statutes. Verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Or he'll speak of the commandments of the Lord. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Speaking of the limitless perfection of the word of God. Another term for God's word, his revelatory speech is God's rules. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. And finally, he will speak of, of the Lord's word or the Lord's words. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Of the 176 verses of the psalm, there are only a handful of verses that don't refer to God's word in at least one of these ways. So kids, here's uh, my challenge for you. I, I'm not going to call it homework because uh, it's too close to the start of school to do that. But uh, go home this afternoon and uh, read for yourself Psalm 119, or if you need help, uh, ask your parent or a sibling. And my challenge to you is to see how many verses in this psalm don't use one of those words I just mentioned. I listed those words on the outline that you've been given so, so you'll have help as, as you engage in this challenge, not homework. But the point in all this is that we can't help but see, if we read through Psalm 119, that whoever wrote this psalm, uh, they are in love with the Word of God. That's the point the psalmist comes back to again and again and again and again and again in 176 verses. The songwriter is like this lovesick young man who can't stop talking about this young lady that he's uh, found himself with. One final thing to note about the psalm before we read our section has to do with its structure. The psalm is written as an acrostic poem. So when you look at the psalm, you'll see perhaps uh, some strange headings in your Bible, depending on uh, what version you're using. Uh, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, and, and so on. 22 headings in total. And each is there representing a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
So in the first eight verses of Psalm 119, uh, it begins with, uh, all eight verses begin with the letter Aleph. And then the next eight verses begin with the letter Bait, and so on. And so the psalmist goes from A to, to Z, or uh, Aleph to Tav, if you will, uh, through the Hebrew alphabet, uh, covering the Lord's word in this acrostic poem. So that's why when we turn to our passage at verse 129, we see the heading Pay. Each of these verses begins with that Hebrew letter. So let's read this section together now. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face Shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed tears, streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Blessed God, teach us your statutes. Instruct us in your word. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your law and do not hide your commandments from us. Cause us to understand the way of your precepts so that we might meditate upon your wonderful deeds. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your decrees that we might follow in them to the end and give to us understanding that we might keep your law and obey it with all our heart. Amen. Our passage this morning naturally divides into three parts that we'll examine together, and these uh, are printed in the outline that has been provided for you. First, we'll see the psalmist's praise. Second, we'll examine the psalmist's petitions. And third, we'll see the psalmist's lament. The psalmist is concerned to show us how we should love and cherish the Word of God. As the psalmist addresses God in prayer, he shows us how we should love and cherish this Word. We should love the Bible so much that it is the reason for our praise, that it's the foundation of our requests, and it's the cause of our tears. It's the reason for our praise, the foundation of our requests, and the cause for our tears. First, the Word of God is a reason for our praise, for our adoration, for our applause, for our admiration. The psalmist is talking to God in prayer, and he chooses to celebrate three things about the Word of God. He says it's wonderful. He says it's illuminating, which is another way of saying it it helps grow in understanding, and he says it's desirable. First, God's testimonies are wonderful. The psalmist begins by declaring, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The psalmist observes a a particular quality in the testimonies of the Lord. He says that they're wonderful. Now, you and I hear uh, the term wonderful, and we think of something pleasant. I had a wonderful time at the fair, or uh, what a wonderful performance of the nutcracker they put on, or what a wonderful wife I have. The psalmist declares the testimonies of the Lord to be wonderful, however, his point is is not simply, uh, he's not simply saying that the testimonies of the Lord are exceptionally pleasing to them. I mean, they are, uh, but the psalmist is first of all not making a point here about how he feels about them. Rather, he's saying something, I believe, about the miraculous character of God's testimonies. 
Of the 13 times that the Hebrew word translated wonderful in verse 29 is used, almost every single instance is used to speak of some miraculous deed or work of God. In Exodus 15, 11, when God has delivered the people out of uh, Egypt, Moses sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So the psalmist is not simply saying something about how the testimonies of the Lord make him to feel, something subjective, but he's saying something about what the testimonies are, something objective. The testimonies of the Lord are not everyday, they're not ordinary, but they're the mighty work of God. They're miraculous. The testimonies of God are in in some way in the same category as God's deliverance of his people from the land of Egypt. And it's this awesome divine character of God's testimonies, the fact that they're just not ordinary words that makes him to say, I must keep these. I must obey these. So notice that the testimonies of God demand our attention and require our obedience because they're the words of the living God. Because they're God speaking, we need to fall silent and listen. Because they're the words of the King of Heaven, therefore we keep the word of God. In verse 130, the psalmist moves to the light-giving quality of God's word. The psalmist says that the opening, the unfolding of your word shines forth light. The second part of this verse expands what is meant by this, that the opening and unfolding of God's word imparts understanding to the simple. The unfolding of God's word is able to cause even the simple, and by this the psalmist means those who are uneducated, those who are young, those who are uh, still wet behind the the ears, to grow in understanding. Some people um, come to the Bible and, and they think, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I'm just an average Joe or Jill. The Bible is uh, beyond me. It's too hard. And so they throw up their hands in despair and put their Bible aside. Now, admittedly, some parts of the Bible are harder to understand than, than others. Even the Apostle Peter admitted it as such in, in the third chapter of his second letter. He says there are some things in the letters of the Apostle Paul that are hard to understand. As our Westminster Confession says, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. In other words, not every part of Scripture is equally easy to understand, nor is it the case that given, uh, any given part will be as easy for me to understand as it is for you to understand. But our passage says it's not the case that Scripture is shrouded in some sort of dark cloud of mystery that uh, ordinary people cannot penetrate or peer into. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. God's Word helps even the simplest of people understand some of the most profound, fundamental truths about the world. By reading the Bible, we suddenly come to understand the the world around us, the creation around us better. We see uh, that the tree that is standing there is not just a tree, but it's God's tree. He not only caused that tree to come forth, but He's given that tree its purpose, to grow for His glory. Reading the Bible, we suddenly come to understand the, the course of human history better. We understand the, the beginning and we understand the end, and, and we can make sense of the events that we see going on around us. We come to undersee or understand uh, that, that things like war and crime and social breakdown and corruption and hostility between people, it's just the rotten fruit of man's rebellion against God. It's just sin, which we read about right here. 
Reading the Bible, we gain insights into the mysteries of, of the human heart, into the realm of psychology, and we can grow to understand the desires and impulses that are common to man. Reading the Bible, uh, most importantly, we come to understand something of who God is and what He's like and what He's done. The opening and unfolding of God's Word imparts understanding, and it does so to the simple. Incidentally, this was one of the serious errors that was made by the Catholic Church leading up to the Reformation. The Bible, which had been translated into Latin, uh, became increasingly the territory, so to speak, of the religious professionals. This was so much the case that when John Wycliffe sought to translate the Bible into English so that congregations could, could read and hear the Bible in their own language, he was met with great criticism. One critic lambasted Wycliffe's, or Wycliffe's translation efforts. In this part, the critic said, in this way, the pearl of the gospel is cast before swine. Now, don't miss this. You are the swine in this critic's objection. In this way, the pearl of the gospel is cast before swine and trampled under feet. As the Reformation got underway, Luther and his fellow Protestants argued strongly that ordinary Christians making use of the ordinary tools at their disposal could understand and profit from the Word of God, from hearing the Word of God. That's why they emphasized the importance of Bible translation, of getting the Scripture to the people in their own languages so that they could be properly instructed by it. And yet, the Catholic Church was strongly opposed to such measures, with one pope, Pius IV, even writing this. Since experience teaches that if the reading of the Holy Bible in the vernacular is permitted generally without description, more damage than advantage will result because of the boldness of men. The judgment of the bishops and inquisitors is to serve as a guide in this regard. Bishops and inquisitors may, in accord with the counsel of the local priest and confessor, allow Catholic translations of the Bible to be read by, uh, be read by those of whom they realize that such reading will not lead to detriment, but to the increase of faith and piety. The permission is to be given in writing. Whoever reads or has such a Bible translation in his possession without this permission cannot be absolved from his sins until he has turned in these Bibles." This is the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, saying that ordinary people who possessed Bibles in their own language and were reading them without permission would cause more damage than advantage, and, and they had committed sin. Is that what the psalmist is saying? No, not at all. The opening of God's Word gives light, and it imparts understanding to the simple. God didn't open his mouth so that he could have a, a small group with a, a highly technical discussion with a bunch of theology professors. Uh, no offense intended to the theology professors here. I'm sure they'd be the first to agree. When God speaks in his word. He's like a loving parent who, who comes up to his child and stoops down, looks them in the eye, and speaks in such a way that they can understand them. That they, He stoops down as a parent and says, this is what I have to say to you. This is what I want you to hear. Isn't that wonderful? The God who has made us has spoken powerfully and in such a way and with such clarity and effectiveness that we can hear his voice and understand him in his word. The God of the universe wants to speak not just to the, the best and brightest, but he wants to be heard even by the plain and simple. So then you and I can go to our Bibles, we can pick them up, we can read them, we can study them carefully, and we can hear from God. 
And we can hear of his marvelous works and the things he has done. Third, the word of God is desirable. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Peter 2 when he says, and I'm quoting the King James here, uh, like newborn babes, newborn babes, we are to desire or long for the sincere milk of the word. Now, in our household, we know a little bit about this right now. Um, though our daughter is a little over a year old and her diet has expanded uh, beyond milk to things like pizza and such, uh, she is she's a very hungry baby. Um, she, uh, when she's hungry, she will grunt and desperately reach uh, to grab food right off our, our, our plates. Uh, this week, I, I was eating this delicious chocolate chip scone, and so I retreated to my study to eat in peace, and sure enough, Lucy comes toddling in, presses right up against my chair, reaches uh, for the scone. She's trying to climb up on my armchair, and she starts to cry. She's just longing to get her little hands on this chocolate chip scone, which was my scone. But I open my mouth and pant. I long for your commandments. Long? Really? Is that me? Is that you? My, uh, like my daughter, clamoring, reaching, pressing up to hear God's word, to hear from his commandments? Am I chasing whatever opportunity I can to, to drink from the fountain of God's word? Am I purposefully, eagerly, uh, with mouth open and ears open, heart receptive, pressing myself up against every opportunity to feed upon and hear and study God's word? Because I long for your commandments. You go to Bible studies because you're desperately thirsty, because you're parched. Could you characterize your attitude as you came through the doors of the building this morning as desperate? Desperate to hear the word of God, desperate to hear from God. We come back this evening because you're ravenous for the word of God. Against the psalmist's words, it's hard not to reach the conclusion that our desires are too weak. Now from the praises the psalmist gives to God concerning his word, the psalmist then goes on to make six petitions, six requests to God. And in these requests, we get a glimpse into uh, what the person who loves God's word Uh, what he asks for, what he wants. In other words, when our minds and hearts are fixed on the word of God, when we're just hungry for them, what is it that we will plead with God for? And so you'll note the six petitions. Turn, be gracious, keep steady, redeem, shine, and teach. And yet for simplicity's sake, I think the psalmist's request could be summarized under two headings. The psalmist wants to know God and he wants to obey God. He wants to know God and he wants to obey God. What's clear from his prayers is that the psalmist isn't just interested in in, uh, uh, having another book to read. He's not just interested in the Bible just because. He's got a a deeper interest. He wants to see God. Notice the request. Turn toward me or face me, God, and show grace to me. Struck by the similarity between this request and that which is in Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where have we heard that before? When shall I come, and literally he says, when shall I come and see the face of God? 
What a bold request it is that the psalmist is making. And yet he does so on the basis of God's past dealings with his people, with those who love him. How does, how does the psalmist know that, though? He knows it from the Word. He knows from the Word of God that this is God's way of working so that he will turn and be gracious toward those who love him and love his name. And the psalmist asks the Lord to shine his face upon him. This is uh, his way of asking the Lord for his favor by having God instruct him in his commandments. Through the word of God, through the commandments of God, the psalmist expects to know and experience the intimate, personal favor of God. And the second major desire the psalmist shows in his prayer request is he desires to walk obediently in the commandments of God. In verse 133, he asks God to establish his steps within the boundaries of God's promises or his word. The psalmist here is admitting his own deficiency. He's admitting his weakness and asking God to so bound up his path that he walks in obedience and so that iniquity, so that sin will not rule over him. Think of all the things that that we might pray for. Think of all the things that the psalmist might have prayed for. But what is it that he asks? He asks, help me obey. Keep sin from me. Or as Jesus would teach us to pray, deliver us from evil. We see a similar request made in, in verse 134. Redeem or deliver me. Why does he ask this? So that I might walk in obedience before you. That's what's important to him. So if the first three verses, the psalmist speaks of his love for the word of God, in these uh, next four verses, we see how his requests are shaped by it, how his desires are shaped by it, what he prays for. His prayer requests are so that he might know God, appealing from and expecting it to happen through the word and asking that God might employ his power to help him walk in obedience to his commands. Now our stanza ends with a lament in verse 136. The psalmist sees that there are people around him who are not keeping God's word, who don't give a second thought about ignoring or even breaking God's law. They don't care for God's instruction. We might know something of that. Elsewhere in the psalm, uh, the songwriter describes his reaction to these people who uh, break God's law, who disregard his commandments, Psalm 119, 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Hot indignation. Verse 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. So on the one hand, the psalmist, he's quite upset. He's uh, angry, angry that he sees the word of God disregarded and trampled upon, set aside, and yet we see in, in this verse, in verse 136, anger is not his only response. My eyes shed streams of tears, he writes, because people do not keep your law. Literally, uh, streams, rivers of water descend from my eyes. These aren't small tears uh, that the psalmist is crying. He's weeping. He's weeping because the law of the Lord is not kept, because he sees around him that people don't care. They're not listening to the Lord. The same phrase is used in Lamentations 3.48 where the writer says that streams of water flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. 
See, the, the, the sorrow that the psalmist feels over sin, the sorrow the psalmist feels over the disregard of the law of God, it's of the same quality and to the same degree that the Jews felt when their enemies came marching through Jerusalem. Is that how we feel when the word of God is disobeyed, disregarded? I think we can be much quicker to anger not quick enough to tears. Plummer writes, grief for our sin in ourselves or others is never excessive. Sin is hateful, horrible, sinful, shameful, wicked, ruinous. We cannot mourn too much for sin. That is impossible. In our day, church, I think we see too much sin and we shed far too few tears. But the psalmist knows that it's not just the sin that is out there, out there, you see, this is uh, this sort of zeal for God's word, which the psalmist has, uh, must not be afraid to turn the mirror of God's word upon ourselves, even though it means that we will see that there is plenty to grieve right in here. Calvin says, If there is then the smallest portion of piety remaining in us, full rivers of tears, and not merely small drops will flow from our eyes. But if we would give evidence of pure and uncorrupted zeal, let our grief begin at ourselves, at our seeing that we are yet far from having attained to a perfect observance to the law, yea, that the depraved lusts of our carnal nature are often rising up against the righteousness of God. This is the sort of mourning, this is the sort of tears and weeping that I think Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are those who mourn those who are given a true glimpse of themselves and see how they have sinned against a holy and pure and perfect God, they see their sin and they weep. And we weep. When we come to love the Word of God as the psalmist does here, uh, we, we find that we will shed tears for it. Both the sin we see uh, in ourselves and the sin we see around us, we weep godly tears like the Apostle Paul, who's speaking of the hard-hearted unbelief of his countrymen in Romans 9, says, and you can just imagine his sorrow as he writes this, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Or Philippians 3, how Paul wrote there, uh, warning the Philippians about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end is destruction. And yet, he says, he does so as tears fill his eyes. Or like Jesus himself. Certainly Jesus was not one to tolerate or make light of sin. Jesus loved the law of God perfectly and he delighted in it better than anyone else. Jesus knew the filthy, horrid nature of our sin. He knew the full extent of it. And yet Luke's gospel tells us that when Jesus drew new to Jerusalem, what did he do? He saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over it. Knowing the sin of its people, knowing what their sin was, knowing what their sin would bring, he wept. He wept, lamenting the sin of the people. See, Jesus had every right to come with hot indignation, to look uh, upon sinners like us who do not love the word of God purely and do not keep his commandments fully, who do not long for the word as the psalmist talks about. He, he had every right to come and look upon us with disgust. This is right, and he, I don't think he would be unjust to do so. 
But the good news is that when Jesus comes, he doesn't just come with hot indignation, but he comes shedding warm tears of mercy for lawbreakers like you and me. He shed tears of mercy and even more, he shed his blood as the atoning sacrifice for every act of obedience and for every desire that is cool and falls far short of where it should be. So to close, the psalmist wants us to see, he wants us to feel how we should love and cherish the Word of God as God's speaking to us. He wants us to, to see uh, why He loves the Word. And He wants us to see how our desires and our prayer requests should be shaped by the Word. And He wants us to see how our tears should be shed on account of the Word. The testimonies of the Lord speak of His great love. And, and how much more reason do we have to love these testimonies? I think because Christ came and shed not only those warm tears of mercy, but shed his own blood, we can say of these things in the psalm that they're so much more true. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Why, why do we have confidence that that's so? Because of Christ. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. We have been delivered for obedience, as we read from Romans 6. And make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. It's true because of Christ we experience the favor of God through his word, through the living word, Christ. Let's give thanks for God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we must begin by confessing the weakness of our desire, how we uh, so often fail to see the wonder of your word, how we don't long and, and pant and eagerly desire your word, how our, our prayer requests are so dis distracted by other things, not bad things, but other things, not asking things like, oh Lord, turn to me and be gracious to me on the basis of your word, on the basis of your past dealings with your people. Oh Lord, establish me, keep my steps steady because of your word, according to your promise. Help me to walk in paths of obedience. Oh Lord, we confess that that is our sin. But we thank you, Lord, that you are our God who speaks. You're a God who has revealed to us most precious testimonies and that they speak to us of who you are, how much you have loved us, and what you've done to redeemed people with weak desires like ourselves. And so we pray this prayer just saying again, Lord, how much we love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and sing with me this song of response, God and the Gospel of his son.
as we go, receive the Lord God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make